1: Welcome to True Crime Garage, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that goes over the top like Sylvester Stallone. He is the captain.
2: I also ride a mechanical bull like Urban Cowboy. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend.
1: This week, we are very happy to be featuring Killer Cupcake Panda by the creative minds over at the Flying Monkeys Craft Brewery. Killer Cupcake Panda is a luscious and crushes double IPA. Doused with pandan leaves, citrus custard, and vanilla cupcake aromas, garage grade four and three quarter bottle caps out of five. And this week, our fridge is full thanks to Marley. In Roy, Utah.
2: I wonder if it's a Wizard of Oz reference, the Flying Monkeys. A big we like your jib to Monique in Creedmoor, Texas.
1: And a big we like your jibby to Haley in Lexington, Kentucky. And Kelly
2: from my hometown of Dummerston, Vermont.
1: Next up, we have Jacqueline in Parts Unknown. She says we are the best part of her Tuesday. And last but not least, we have Suzanne. In Duluth, Georgia, everybody that we just mentioned went to TrueCrimeGarage.com and they helped out with this week's beer fund. And for that, we thank you.
2: Not only did they go support the show, but they waited a really long time because we're way backed up, so be patient. We will shout you out at some point. It's more exciting that way. It's a surprise. Anyways, thanks for supporting the show. Make sure you check us out. On the Stitcher app for all of our old episodes. And check out us on Stitcher Premium for our bonus weekly show called Off the Record. We're talking about the confession of the Stephen Avery case this week. So check that out. And that is enough of the beers. Now,
1: All right, everybody. Gather around. Grab a chair. Grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Black Forest, Colorado, about 20 miles northwest of Colorado Springs. The Church family lived in a single-family home with four bedrooms. The smaller bedroom was used as a family den. The house was nice, and it was rather secluded, which was just what parents Mike and Diane Church wanted. They had over five acres on Eastonville Road, This was a family of six. Mike and Diane Church and their four kids, Heather, Chris, Gunner, and Sage. Mike and Diane were college sweethearts, and they worked very hard to build a nice and happy home for their family. This was their dream house, and Diane said it was the perfect place to raise children. But things were not always perfect. In fact, by early 1991, Mike had moved out. Diane filed for divorce. Mike was living in an apartment in town closer to his work, and Diane stayed in the home with the four children. Everyone was working through this tough time. Diane sought some counseling. Mike had regular visitation and equal time with the kids, And their oldest child, Heather Dawn Church, was excelling in school. Heather played the violin, and even at an early age, she was telling her parents she was going to be an astronaut when she grew up. Her parents played along, even though they thought it was just a phase, and sent Heather to one of those summer space camps. When she returned, She was even more excited about becoming an astronaut and told her folks she was the only kid that did not throw up when in the shuttle simulator. As the finalizing of the impending divorce drew near, Mike and Diane put the house on the market, but Diane and the kids would stay there until it sold. The school year started up in September of 1991 and the kids were back to being busy. On Tuesday, September 17th, this was to be just another ordinary day. At 6.30 a.m., 13-year-old Heather Dawn Church and her younger brothers got on the school bus. They lived out in the sticks, so the bus ride was as long as an hour some days. Heather was in the 8th grade at Falcon Middle School. After school, Diane prepared dinner for the kids. She and two of her boys had some commitments at their local church. The two middle boys, Chris and Gunner, were involved with the Cub Scouts. and They had a meeting on this evening. The church was just 15 miles down the road. While the two boys were at Cub Scouts, Diane was going to attend a homemaking class. Heather explained if she and five-year-old Sage tagged along, they would have nothing to do. Heather offered to stay home, babysit, and tidy up the house. This would work out nicely, because Sage could keep his normal bedtime of about 8 o'clock. Before leaving, Heather and Diane discussed several things. Two of the most important Sage had a flu shot earlier that day, and Heather should look out for adverse reactions. And Heather told her mother about a school dance that would be that Friday. She was asking for permission to go. Diane agreed as long as Heather went with a group of friends. Before leaving, Diane checked the doors and made sure they were all locked. She hurried Chris and Gunner into the back seat of their vehicle and she pulled out of the driveway. While leaving the property, she noticed that one of the bedroom windows was slightly open, just about five inches. She planned to call Heather later on anyway to check in on Sage, so Diane made a mental note to ask Heather to close the window during that call. At 8.30, Diane called home. Heather picked up the phone. Diane wanted to know if Sage was in bed. Heather says no. She let him stay up to watch the TV show Home Improvement. They were watching together in the family room. After the show, he was going to bed. Diane told Heather that she loved her. And she and the two boys would be home by 10 p.m. Diane pulled into the driveway, just before 10.15. She noticed that the outside house lights were not on. Her and the boys got out of the vehicle and made their way up to the house. They went to the patio sliding door, which was pretty common. Diane found the door unlocked, so she did not need to use her key. The door being unlocked was also common. The church family had two cats, and they would typically let the cats outside for the night. And Diane says the kids were always forgetting to lock the door after doing so. Inside, the house was dark. Diane turned on some lights and told the two boys to go to bed. All three boys shared a room, and Diane went and checked on little Sage, finding him asleep in his bed wrapped up in the blankets like a burrito. Diane went to the family room to talk to Heather. She expected to find her sitting in the dark, watching TV as usual. However, Heather was not in the family room. She was not in her bedroom. Diane searched the house and could not find Heather at all. She went outside and walked the property around the house, shouting Heather's name in the dark. Still nothing. No Heather. Diane was worried and afraid. She called her husband Mike. She asked him if he had Heather. Was she with him? Mike said no. He asked if she called Heather's friends or the neighbors. Then he asked Diane, Does it look like someone came in the house? Before Diane could answer, Mike said, call 911 now. We start off, Captain, by jumping right into the search for 13-year-old Heather Dawn Church. Now, we must keep in mind how large the church family's property is. Now that guy that we just heard said it was over five acres. There are two really good books on this week's case and we will have those as this week's recommended reading and maybe next week as well. One source says the property was six acres and the other lists the plot of land at 5.8 acres. So both probably very accurate but that's what size of property we are dealing with. Now, because of the remoteness of where they lived, Diane, Heather's mother, she was thinking that Heather must have gone outside, maybe in search of one of the cats and walked too far. Maybe she fell, twisted an ankle or busted her knee, couldn't walk back to the home, that sort of thing. On the other hand, we have Heather's father, Mike, He had a completely different feeling that night. Mike said immediately after the phone call with Diane, where he tells her to call 911, he jumped into his pickup truck racing like a jet to get to his family's home. Later, he would say he knew right away that someone took his daughter.
2: Yeah, and they have the extra stress already by their family separating
1: Diane did exactly as Mike said. He, she called 911. Her call was routed to the El Paso County Colorado Sheriff's Department. It was not customary for this Sheriff's Department to take a missing report until the person in question was gone for more than 24 hours. Sadly, this included teenagers as well. Diane requested that a deputy, at the very least, come out to the house. This request was denied. Diane was told by the deputy on the phone that she should be calling Heather's friends because 99% of the time, missing kids are with a friend or at a party. Diane asked her, what about the other 1%? Because the sheriff's office would not send a deputy, Diane started calling her friends and family, asking if anyone would come to the house and help look for Heather. By the time Mike arrived, others were already there, looking for the missing 13-year-old. After several more calls to 911, a deputy was finally dispatched to the house, arriving just before midnight.
2: Yeah, and we don't like how they handled it initially, but at least they sent on a cop.
1: Yeah, regardless of how the 911 calls were handled, the deputy that was dispatched to go to the house, the churches have and had nothing but good things to say about this officer. We are talking about Sheriff's Deputy Les Milligan. Les was very young and very green. Officer Milligan went right into action as soon as he arrived on the scene. He He took control of the scene and ordered the El Paso search and rescue team to come out to the property ASAP. Unfortunately, they never found Heather that night. In fact, they did not even find any clues as to where she may be or what could have happened. Diane later said it was like the girl just vanished into thin air. The next morning, the questions started. The officers wanted to know everything, everything about Heather, the house, their marriage, the divorce, everything.
2: So they're looking around the house. They're calling friends and family. They can't find her. Now they want to know, is it possible that she would want to run away for any reasons?
1: Yeah. Law enforcement, they're speculating here, Captain. They want to know, could the 13 year old be upset about the divorce? Yeah. So from which, from my understanding, This was going to be final. The divorce was going to be final just before Thanksgiving. So it was coming soon. Could she have been upset about the whole situation and maybe she took off? Diane believed no. That could not be what happened here. She tells the officers that Mike moved out of the house months before and Heather did not seem upset or to be having any difficulty with the situation at all. So she's explaining here, this isn't anything new. This didn't just happen this week or last month. This has been going on for months. And me as a parent and my, my husband living elsewhere, us as parents, we've not seen any indication from her that she's struggling with this. In fact, she's excelling in school. Mm -hmm. Diane told the Daily Sentinel many reasons why her daughter, Heather, why her life was great and why she would not run away, citing that Heather was a very reasonable kid. She got really good grades. She was recently accepted into the gifted and talented program at school. She asked about going to the school dance on that Friday. Right. We talk about usually when people are making plans, they don't have these underlining plans to disappear.
2: Well, I understand that law enforcement has to look at all these different angles, but it's sad that you see in so many cases that parents or loved ones have to try to convince law enforcement of, of what they believe.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And she, she also pointed out back to the dance. She said, you know, I've not only did I give her permission to do this thing. So it's not like we got in some kind of argument. She wanted to do something. And I said, no, right. I gave her permission to go to the dance to which we have Heather telling her mother, great. I have a new outfit. I'm going to save that outfit to wear it to the dance.
2: Yeah, it seems like something that she was looking forward to. seems like something that she was uh, making a big deal to herself.
1: And she recently applied for the school yearbook staff as well. Now, obviously, we don't know all that was said to investigators or exactly how they arrived at this conclusion, but I will say that very early on, the sheriff's office said publicly And to the media, and this is an exact quote, it's unlikely the girl ran away. In fact, very quickly in the investigation, the sheriff's department brought in the FBI to investigate this as a likely abduction. But it was that morning, that next morning, where things would start to get a little weird. So it's during this questioning that Diane remembers the open window. This is the window to the master bedroom. She opened it and forgot to close it before she left and then saw it open when pulling out of the driveway.
2: Right. And like you stated before, she went around locking all the doors, making sure that her kids were safe. When she's pulling out of the driveway, she notices this window. But the fact that you're hearing this the next day, I think it would raise a little bit of alarm.
1: I agree. I agree. She tells law enforcement that she meant to tell Heather about the open window when she called home at 830 p.m. the night before, but states that she forgot to. She told them that all of the doors were locked when she left the house, but when she came home, the sliding glass door to the patio was unlocked. She added that other than a couple of items, nothing was out of place. No signs of a struggle, no forced entry, and in fact, five-year-old Sage was asleep and perfectly fine when she arrived home at 10.15 p.m.
2: Now, I don't think we know this information. Like you said, one re- one site reports 5.8 acres, uh, one reports six acres, but I wonder how far away from the road the house actually was.
1: I don't know the exact distance, but the description that I've seen a few times is that it's, it's a long driveway that we're talking about, right? That there's a decent amount of distance between the house and, and the yard. So if you're an investigator, I think I get what they're, what they're thinking about. I mean, you're looking at this thing like, well, is this even a crime scene there? There's no clues here, no evidence. And I'm guessing, but I would bet some of the detectives were probably wondering if, Heather went with someone willingly or opened the door willingly for her then abductor.
2: Right. Because it could be a friend that she went with, possibly uh, a boyfriend or uh, a male friend that she maybe hasn't told the family about.
1: Yeah. We do know about the dance. Right. Um, Now the thing about this master bedroom window When Diane went to show them, show law enforcement, exactly which window she was talking about, she found the window was now closed. She told them she did not close the window, and they asked everyone who was there that night looking for Heather if any of them had closed the window, and everyone says no. So they are dusting the window and other areas of the home for fingerprints. Upon further examination, they found that the screen to the window was askew. So they take the screen off and quickly notice it was actually in the track, but it was backwards. A technician inspected the metal frame. All in all, windows and the screen, the tech found three possible fingerprints. And so remove these fingerprints or the latent fingerprints. These were submitted to the Automated Fingerprint Identification System, or AFIS, for short, in hopes that a match would be found in the national databases. But no such match was found. The investigators did not like that the churches called so many friends that night, people who walked through the house and property, possibly disturbing the crime scene. But, I mean, what are you going to do if you call the sheriff's office and they offer no help? Yeah. At first you're going I mean you're going to call your friends, relatives and such for help.
2: Sounds like a l- bunch of malarkey and a bunch of horse shit. I mean, like you said, it, it it's very similar to uh John Binet Ramsey case where they had a lot of people inside the crime scene basically. But like you said, when you're calling for help and nobody shows up. What what, are, what else are you supposed to
1: do? So the morning after the disappearance, after questioning, Diane says she got tired of doing nothing. So everybody is out that night and all the next morning looking for Heather. Meanwhile, Diane is supposed to just kind of sit tight inside the home. She, I mean, as a parent, you got to be going freaking crazy here. She says she got tired of doing nothing while everybody else was out looking for Heather. So she decided to calm herself by cleaning the house. She started off by doing some dishes, and then she turned on the vacuum cleaner. She's vacuuming the carpet when one of the investigators standing outside, he's just outside the house. Right. He heard the vacuum. He heard the noise. He went running into the house, and he yelled at Diane, wanting to know what she was doing. Why are you doing this? We need to process the scene. Yeah. In the days after Heather vanished, Lieutenant Bill... Mistretta of the El Paso Sheriff's Department kept the media and the public informed. He said the FBI was brought in and the FBI was conducting interviews at Heather's Middle School. The Sheriff's Department and the FBI together were questioning classmates, teachers, counselors, friends, neighbors, and church associates. But ground and aerial searches turned up nothing. Lieutenant Mistretta said, The case was taking no positive direction, and we are just continuing at it with no new leads. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go, for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. Do you want to set your child up for
2: success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today.
1: The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. while your subscription is active.
2: All right, we're back. Cheers, me matey. Cheers,
1: Captain. Now let's talk about one lead that did come in. So first we need to understand that with a lot of these missing kid cases, the community really comes together. We're talking missing flyers everywhere. Pictures of Heather seen all over town. They were not just posting missing flyers at local businesses far and wide. Middle school kids made big signs with poster board and small wooden handles, standing in crowds and on the sides of streets, holding these signs high as cars drove by asking everyone, have you seen this girl? There was also a command center of sorts set up. This place was for volunteers to meet and man the phone lines. There were phones set up with a tip number that people could call. On Monday, October 13th in the morning, less than one month after Heather disappeared, a call came in. The caller, an anonymous female caller, said there is a body at the Fox Run Regional Park area. This is in Black Forest. This sent the sheriff's department 30 members of the El Paso search and rescue team, two tracking dogs and two helicopters on an all day search that covered 400 acres, but turned up nothing. Afterward, the sheriff's office publicly urged the caller to call again, but this time with more details because of the size of the park. Right. They would get another call, this time another anonymous female caller, sending them on another fruitless search. Later, information provided by several in law enforcement would state that both calls were believed to be hoaxes even before the searches were conducted, but they had to follow up on all tips and leads. Well, it's amazing how
2: (laughs) sick individuals are.
1: It's, It's very strange that that stuff even happens. And it's unclear if law enforcement believes that both calls came from the same person, but they have stated it's believed both calls came from a teenage girl, from a teenage sounding girl.
2: It's just strange that somebody would be sitting there watching the case unfold and and want to make something up to waste law enforcement's time. It, it, what's the motive?
1: Yeah, it it just doesn't make any sense. But to this day, Captain, the caller or callers have not been identified.
2: Well, they have been identified as real pieces of <laughs> shit.
1: That's, that's right. Zinger. You're a real shit stain. Yeah. So we talk about the community coming together, but then we also talk about these asshats of society with these harmful and hurtful fake calls, which destroy the parents and loved ones of Heather and compromise search efforts and the investigation itself. Yeah. But I much rather prefer to talk about people coming together and helping one another. One of many instances was when we see this case, this is the, the uh, Matthews family. They reached out offering friendship to Mike and Diane Church. Jim and Gloria Matthews were able to offer the churches their sympathies And they were two people that can truly understand and empathize just exactly what the churches were going through. Seven years before Heather Church went missing and the believed abduction of Heather Church, 12-year-old Janelle Matthews was believed to have been abducted from her home. This is in Greenlee, Colorado, about a two-hour drive north of Black Forest, Colorado. Janelle was dropped off at the family's home after she attended a Christmas choir concert. She was last seen walking into her empty home by her friend and her friend's father when they dropped her off at the house. Later, Janelle's parents found the house empty, but Janelle's shoes placed neatly in the family room near a space heater with the TV on. There was no sign of a struggle or forced entry, but police said they believed the 12-year-old was abducted from the home. Her case remains unsolved to this day. Now over 34 years later and recent developments, her body was finally located just a little over two months ago in July of this year. The body was found by oil field workers about 20 miles from her home. I believe they are putting in a pipeline in that area and that's how they found the remains. Police have named Idaho resident and two time candidate for governor 68-year-old Steve Pankey as a person of interest and continue to investigate this case. I would expect further movement in this case, and that could, and hopefully, come very soon. So what we know here, Captain, with as the police say, we're working this case with really no leads, really no clues. We're working it. We need it to take some kind of direction. All we really know at this point is that something happened to Heather Dawn Church on September 17th, 1991, between the hours of 8.30 p.m. when her mother called home and talked to Heather. Heather was just fine. And 10.15 when her mother arrived at the house.
2: Yeah, at least we're pointed in a direction. I think law enforcement is going, okay, based off what her parents are saying, based off what people are saying, around the community. We don't think that she took off on her own. There's some evidence to suggest that somebody came through the house. So, so she, if she is alive, she is in danger.
1: The search in the investigation was huge. It was rather big. And I think Lieutenant Ken Hilt of the investigations division of the El Paso County Sheriff's office summed up The search best in his summary for the case where he states a detailed crime scene search was conducted of the church home. Search and rescue teams coupled with search dogs scoured the area. Fingerprints were recovered and forwarded to both the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. Both local and national media took part in the quote, Where's Heather? missing persons campaign as the El Paso County Sheriff's Office and the Federal Bureau of Investigation combined efforts to solve the case. In the years that followed, detectives continued to pursue hundreds of leads which came in from all parts of the country. In addition to being featured in national publications and television shows, the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit produced a suspect profile. The suspect profile that was released to the media was a summarized version of the profile and it is as follows. The unknown subject is a male in his early to late 20s, shy, introverted, and a loner. Subject is unable to achieve sexually whatever he wants with women and has difficulty with women in general. The subject would probably have knowledge of the victim and her family. After the crime, the subject would have behavioral changes which would be noticeable by associates. Persons close to the offender would notice changes which include an increase in alcohol or drug use, a deterioration in personal appearance, sleeping disorder, a desire to be alone, possibly fail to show up for work after the abduction.
2: I'm wondering, since we have little to no clues how they're getting this possible age range, the so
1: I, I would think that they're basing a lot of this off of previous crimes uh, that that have a similar, similar victimology and right. maybe even a similar um, modus operandi where somebody's coming into an actual home. That's very rare and abducting a child from inside the home. The right. victim is 13 years old. What we're also seeing here, what is what is released is. It's interesting on a few different levels because one, we are getting a summarized version. They're getting, they're, they're going, okay, this version we're going to release to the media so that they share it with the public because we do need the public's help. But there's another version of this profile that would have been given to law enforcement to, to agencies actually working the case. Yeah. Now, I don't know how much they would vary. I imagine in some cases they vary greatly, but this specific case, we don't know. What we do see here is typical things of what we see in other profiles. It's, it's all kind of vague stuff, but they're saying to the public with this profile, we're looking for somebody that has changed. This is a dramatic change for this person. This person committed an abduction this would be a dramatic change therefore their appearance their behavior their mannerisms their their routine their drinking or drug use all of that is going to be affected and change as well right because of this big change so if you've noticed a big change in your cousin your your uncle your your brother your husband boyfriend whomever right that might be somebody that we might want to talk to. This is also trying to ring bells with employers. Do you have somebody that showed up and they were missing work? And when they return to work, are they, are they cover, you know, covered in scratches or do they look like they've been in a fight or something like that? I feel like some of the things we see here, Captain, are kind of repetitive from other profiles. The, the, the age of late 20s is one that we typically see with a victim of this age. And I think that they come up with that age. Now, profilers will tell you that age is by far the hardest thing to come up with. But typically, when we see a victim in their early teens, female victim, early teens, I often see that late 20s is kind of where they put that that number for age.
2: Yeah. I I also wonder if that has an effect. I mean, if you look at Heather and the pictures I've seen, she looks like a young 13. Yeah. And so I I wonder if they take that into account as well.
1: I think the thought with, with being late twenties is, is simply this it's, it's one, they're old enough to show some, some form of sophistication, some form of not being so impulsive. Uh And also they're old enough to have committed more petty type crimes, but similar in nature where they may not have been locked up. They, these may have been things where they made a pass at, at a young girl. Maybe it's a relative, maybe it's somebody close to the offender, but maybe it was never reported. Usually those types of crimes we need those to occur for something like this to take place usually there's escalation going on yeah. the, the 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 offender will escalate into abduction and then i mean i'm sorry to say it but possible murder so that's why i think we have the age of 29 plus it, it, it's you wonder why they don't go higher than that but you also wonder does that mm-hmm. factor in that that this there is some impulsiveness because of the risk level of going into somebody else's home.
2: Yeah, I would also lean towards the idea, though, as law enforcement, I mean, this is not something I would want to share with the family, but the way she was abducted, the lack of clues, um, we have no sightings, it seems like we have no leads coming in, and, and she's been gone for quite a while. At some point, you have to start leaning towards the idea that, that she might not be alive anymore. Yeah. And and then that that doesn't really change the pro- profile much, but I think as far as drinking and all those things, those will get even more escalated um, because of a, of a murder.
1: The really weird thing, the strange things to me that stand out, one, there's no blood. There's no evidence of any type of struggle inside their home. And then on top of that, if she wasn't, abducted from inside the home, removed from the home. The, the little boy was sleeping, right? I mean, he didn't wake up and and hear screams or see anybody strange in their home. This was all, if she's removed from inside that home, this all went down very stealth-like. Now the case as mentioned was featured on several different TV shows. Diane church. She was really the one she was the, the face of this investigation. She did countless interviews. She handled the newspapers and TV interviews on a national level. She was on several programs, including, but not limited to the Oprah Winfrey show and the Jerry Springer show, the Oprah Winfrey show. Captain, am I showing my age here? Wasn't it recent more recently just called Oprah? Did, when did it make the change from the Oprah Winfrey show to just Oprah? I don't know. I'm not the head of the fan club. (laughs) I feel like when I was a kid, it was the, the Oprah Winfrey show. Well, the national spotlight and the huge focus on this case, even just at the local level, sparks what this week's recommended readings author would call the usual confusion and lunacy. This next part is from the book, The Devil's Right Hand Man. Callers reported Heather lookalikes at a credit union in Pueblo, at a Taco Bell in Colorado Springs, and at a mall in Aurora. Diane would remember her missing daughter once was sighted in four states in one day and as far away as Israel. Investigators checked out a white van, a blue truck, an old green barn where satanic rituals allegedly were held. They even went so far as to research important dates for practitioners of witchcraft and Satanism and rode around El Paso County for hours with a mental patient who claimed to have information about the crime. Psychics popped up. One offered to Diane an eerily exact description of the last meal she prepared for Heather and the boys, saying, quote, you cooked hot dogs because you were in a hurry and the boys liked them. But Heather didn't like hot dogs, and she told you she would fix a peanut butter sandwich for herself. The woman was able to offer Diane little more other than to say she thought Heather was dead. Another psychic, Dorothy Allison of New Jersey, told members of Diane's support group that she saw a property with lots of trees, a building with a triangular roof, a tan pickup truck, and a man named Brown, except there was something unusual about the spelling. On September 13th, 1993, almost two years to the day when Heather vanished, an unkempt, scruffy drifter named Timothy Belbeck walked into the Colorado State Police Station, and he had a story to tell. Four days earlier, he found, quote, a body off of Rampart Range Road. The officer Tim spoke with told him, that's not our jurisdiction. You're going to need to go to the El Paso County Sheriff's Office. And so he did. Right. There, he told a deputy that down a deep ravine, that four days earlier, he found a body and an old rusted out, beat up 1960s Chevy. The front door to the vehicle was open and the car was filled with dirt from likely a mudslide. Near the vehicle, amongst some larger rocks, Tim spotted what he later determined to be a human skull. He freaked out and ran back up to the top and left the area. The deputy listened to Tim's story and then told him to take his information to the state police. A vehicle death would be their investigation. So Tim did so. There he met Officer Quintana. After being turned away twice, finally, someone wanted to talk with him. Quintana and Tim got in the officer's state trooper vehicle and made their way back out to Rampart Range Road. There, the two slowly worked their way down to the vehicle. Just as Tim had said, sure enough, there was this old rusted out blue and white 1961 Chevy Impala with the door open and the car full of dirt. The officer looked around and thought that a body, it should be easy to find. Right. I want everybody to, to note that when Tim is reporting this information all three times, he's saying that he found a body, but it, it turns out that there was just a skull there. He had only in fact found a skull. Right. After more searching, they did find a small pile of bones. Now the officer bagged up the skull, bagged up the bones and took all of this, all of Timothy's information and his full story and how and why he found the skull officer Quintana. Then with the skull went to the El Paso sheriff's department again, where he too was told that it sounded like a car fatality. So it was, his the it was the state police's investigation the state police's case officer quintana put the bags in his work car and drove to meet his family eventually he he's going to take polaroids of the skull and he believed that that maybe the the body didn't have anything to do with the ve- the, the vehicle at all he thought maybe it was left there from decades and decades and decades ago that it could have even been like a native American, um, or anything of of that nature. Right. At this time. So now he's got these, these Polaroid pictures of the skull in his work car and he goes to meet his family. And I believe they were meeting either to like go shopping or, or go out to eat something of that nature. He's meeting them there. Now keep in mind, This is almost two years to the day when Heather disappeared and still at this point in our timeline, there have been ribbons put up all over the neighborhoods to, to, you know, cheer on the return of this girl. There were missing posters put up. There were Heather's picture all over town. So his daughter, officer Quintana, his daughter gets into his vehicle and she's rummaging around. She finds the Polaroids of the skull and she's looking at them. And, and, and unfortunately officer Quintana, once he realized that his daughter was in the car, he realized he had some things in there. He didn't want her to see. She's looking at these pictures and he's trying to tell her, you know, Hey, I think this is what, was going on that's this is why Dad has these pictures. It's his daughter that says, You found Heather, you found Heather Don Church. She recognized the layout of the teeth, so the the picture of the skull there is no lower jaw, just the upper teeth there right, and she recognized the two large incisors flanked by two crooked laterals. This matched up with a lot of the pictures that they had posted around town of Heather.
2: Yeah, it's a very distinct look.
1: Yeah. So on the second anniversary of Heather's disappearance, the state police announced that they had recovered the body of missing 13-year-old Heather Dawn Church. Investigators were quite skeptical about Timothy Belbeck's story. How did he find the skull so well hidden? This was not a spot where people go. This isn't, you know, there's no traffic in this area. He had to climb down into this ravine to find this skull. Why did he tell police he found a body when he said he only saw a skull? Right. Why would he call a skull a body? Why did he wait four days before reporting what he found? Tim's story is pretty... Uh, complicated let's say okay what we know is he's he's a drifter he is somebody that is may just be passing through the area right he states that he was staying when he had money he would stay at the pink panther motel but on a night about five days before he led quintana to the skull he says he was forced to camp in his truck because he didn't have enough money for the motel. So he's trying to sleep in his truck. He's sitting in there drinking whiskey uh, for his camping trip. And he's, he said that he saw like, um, I don't know if they were teenagers or just young adults that parked some distance away and they were, they were partying as well. And throughout the night, they were kind of tossing rocks down into this ravine. And when the rocks would land down below, he could hear them bouncing off of what he thought was metal. Now, we do know that there was a vehicle down in that ravine. Right. This dude does not have much money. He's a drifter. His, he's thinking, there's metal down there. I can turn that metal into money. So the next day, he decides to climb down into the ravine looking to pull all that scrap metal out of the ravine and turn it into walking around money. He finds the car down there. That's a good sign. He said he saw a washing machine down there as well. This is a place that people were dumping large-size throwaway objects probably for a very long time. It's when he's down there conducting this search for scrap metal that he says he saw the skull amongst some of the rocks near the vehicle. These rocks were, um, you know, bigger, bigger rocks, almost bowling ball size. But he said what stood out for him was the color of the skull was significantly different than the color of the rocks. So he went to investigate when he saw that it was a skull. He did in fact freak out when he returned, you know, gathered his thoughts, got back to, to normal. He thought, well, if it's a uh, vehicle fatality, right? Because it's right by this vehicle, mm-hmm. he's thinking he should report it because the family of this missing person should know what happened to their loved one. Exactly. He tells one of his drinking buddies, "Hey, I'm I'm going. I, this is what I found, and I'm going to report it." The drinking buddy quickly points out, "If it's not a vehicle fatality." If it was foul play, they might think you did something. So that kind of talks him out of reporting it. Right. A couple days go by and Timothy starts thinking, well, maybe there would be a reward involved. Even if it was a vehicle accident, if it's a missing person or if there was foul play, Timothy thinks, well, maybe I should report it due to there being a possible reward. So his whole story is complicated, and I'm sure the investigators, when they find out that this was a missing 13-year-old girl, you found her skull, your story is strange, you didn't report it for a few days, they—
2: You're a drifter. Yeah. Yeah.
1: They don't like this guy. They're they're looking at him as, okay, not only did we find her, but we now may possibly have, for the first time, a suspect in this whole case.
2: Mm-hmm. They walked around him in the interrogation room, going trying to smell if he' is a piece of shit or not,
1: yeah, in the end, though, Captain, they ended up believing Timothy's story. They were probably able to um back up some of the things that he was telling them. right, so the other thing too, with him being a drifter, I don't know how they ruled him out, but I know they ruled him out fairly quickly. They may have been able to figure out that he wasn't even in the area when Heather went missing. Right. So now we have recovered the body, but really that did nothing for the investigation other than rule out a runaway scenario. Now they knew she was abducted and killed, but they still didn't know by who and why. For everything true crime, go to TrueCrimeGarage.com and join us back here tomorrow for more on this case. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't let her.